So I'm somebody who works continuously between the lab and the field, but I've always considered myself as a field anthropologist. I've spent more than four years in the field, and since I was a graduate student, there's never been a year uh, that I didn't go to the field for at least some time. And the reason I went to the field in the first place uh, is that I'm particularly interested in answering some questions about certain types of rituals, especially some really arousing or painful or, uh, or maybe extreme rituals. And I guess the reason I keep coming back to the field is that I really don't have the answers yet. But I do have some ideas, and uh, not necessarily about how to get the answers, but perhaps it's more about how to ask the questions. So my main question that has always driven my research is why do people do these things? Why would you put a rod through your cheeks? Why would you flagellate yourself? Why would you walk on burning coals? Our ritual behavior is a human universal. We know of no society, whether past or present, that hasn't had some type of rituals. So much that it might be seen as one of the defining features of our species, although we're not the, species, the, the only species that does it, of course. And this in itself, I think, is a great puzzle. Because ritual behavior can entail significant costs and investments in terms of uh, time, energy, uh, resources, and without any immediately apparent payoffs. And I think this puzzle is particularly pronounced in the case of some really intense, painful, dangerous, extreme, call it what you want, some really high arousal rituals that involve extraordinary costs but have no obvious benefits. And I would like to stress the word obvious here. Now, in certain cases, as we know, participation in these rituals is coerced by social norms and peer pressure. Think of an initiation ritual. Failing to undergo such a ritual might lead to social ostracism, uh, excommunication, punishment, corporal punishment, or even worse. But in the case of many other rituals, and these rituals are very widespread in the world, uh, people perform these actions voluntarily, without, even, without any social pressure, and in the case of some rituals, like the Anastanaria, uh, against social pressure, despite of social pressure. So again, the question that I'd like to repeat is, why are people willingly... Uh, spending so much energy and resources in doing ritual activities that to some outsider might seem as appalling or scary uh, or as Harvey has called it, rites of terror. And what might be the potential benefits? So my first step in addressing this question was to go to Queen's University Belfast where I found Harvey Whitehouse and asked him to be my doctoral supervisor. At that time he had uh, more hair and probably less money <laughs> uh, we both did but he had the same interest and the same enthusiasm about rituals that he has now and I could see the sparkle lit in his eyes when I mentioned the Greek firewalking rituals so we came up with a plan that I would go to the field and study these rituals in the wild and I went to Greece and I spent 16 months in that area and the five circles are pointing to the five little villages where these rituals are performed. Now, these communities are called the Anastenaria, and they are Orthodox Christians, just like your average Greek Orthodox Christian, 
But in addition to the Orthodox ritual calendar, they have this unique annual cycle that is built around the worship of two particular saints. Those are Constantine and Helen. Now, the Greek church has persecuted them for over a century, claiming that they're pagans. But their rituals persist until today. And this ritual cycle involves a variety of ritual actions performed throughout the year, including numerous processions, cleansing rites, worshipping the sacred icons that are very central to this tradition. They they came from Bulgaria when these people were part of the exchange population that followed the first Balkan Wars. And the first thing that they, they took with them was their icons. And they brought them back to these villages and they, they reestablished their, their ritual tradition. And of course, it also involves what they're most famous for, best known for, which is the firework itself. So every May they will gather, they will bring out their sacred icons, they will play the lyre and the drum, and they will enter this ecstatic dance that lasts for the better part of three days. And at the end of the third day, which is May 21st, and that's the day of the two saints, Constantine and Helen, their patron saints, they will take off their shoes and they will start dancing over a carpet of glowing red coals, barefoot, as you can see here. Now, this is no fun. And they don't do this for fun. Actually, the Astenaria themselves use terms like strain or suffering to refer to their dance and the experience of dancing. Imagine a room pretty much the size of this room with very loud drumming with a leer and with lots of smell of incense with maybe one or two hundred people crammed in the corners and these people dancing for three days under extreme heat and stress. And after the music starts playing, you can see that people's faces immediately turn grim and pensive. And as they enter the dance, you can see that they're really in agony. They start crying. So in my fieldwork, I began interviewing people. And I began asking them about their rituals. And that was when I had the same revelation that I guess most anthropologists who study rituals in the field have had at some point. And that's that when asking people uh, why they perform the rituals, they, the most common answer that you get is that they don't know. So I would go to the youngsters, or the, the beginners, not necessarily youngsters, and I would ask them, why do you do these rituals? I'd say, we don't know. I, mean, I, just, I just felt this urge uh, to go into the fire. And somebody told me, somebody, I was just dancing around and somebody pushed me. So we have this saying in Greek that once you enter the dance, then you have to dance. And then I felt this urge and it gradually became extremely important for me to do it again and again. Or they would point me to the elders. They would say, well, ask the elders. They know. We know nothing about this. When I asked the elders, I saw that they, they very often had explanations about this, interpretations of the, the purpose behind the ritual. But those are very idiosyncratic. So somebody would tell me, well, we do this for the crops to grow. It's a fertility ritual. Somebody else around the corner would tell me, don't listen to her. We do this to get healed. It's a healing ritual. Somebody else would say, well, we do this to, uh, to, to absolve people of their sins, and so on and so forth. And then I realized that when you went back to the ethnography, this is a very, very small place. And the Greek ethnographic tradition that came mostly from what we call folklore studies uh, would include real names in previous work. And even when they didn't, this is such a small community where... Life stories can 
can reveal everybody's identity. Right? So I went and found the same people's statements from 30 years back. And 30 years back, most of them said, well, we don't know. I, I don't know why I did it. I just felt this urge to do it. I felt an impulse. So they would refer to, to it in terms of instincts and impulses and urges. So meaning for this activity comes post hoc through the act of participation itself. And this was really puzzling to me. These people attribute tremendous significance to these rituals. Uh, they, they see them as really fundamental for their, their life. And yet they don't have a clear idea of why they're important. And anthropologists have known this for a very long time. And they propose various answers to this puzzle. And most of these answers argue that rituals survive not because of their explicit or because they achieve some direct goal, but because one way or another they serve some other more indirect function, whether for the individual or for society. So I started thinking how one might approach this systematically. Uh, when you want to study a phenomenon that is so complex, like cultural phenomena are, you need to examine it from multiple perspectives, which means you need to account for culture, you need to account for the mind, you need to account for the body. And the problem is that people who study these three things, most often than not, uh, don't really like each other. Oh, is that you in the other pictures as well? <laughs> you can find anything on the internet. <laughs> and the greatest dividing line between these traditions is perhaps that between field studies and lab studies. So people in the business of experimental work very often dismiss some of the more qualitative approaches in our field because they say they produce messy results, they cannot be verified, their approaches like, lack control, they lack proper testing, they lack replicability, they cannot be generalized, and so on and so forth. And of course they're right. On the other hand, those working within the humanities look at lab studies, and they very often dismiss them out of hand because they say these are produced uh, within... They come from very decontextualized, unrealistic, sterilized environments. And they slice up behavior into such tiny fractions that cannot meaningfully be taken back to tell us anything about the whole. So how are these related to real life? And, and these guys are all, also right. But I think that the problem is that when these mutual criticisms become aphorisms, rather than leading to any constructive exchange. So instead of mutually enriching each other, these two paradigms, the, the two sides, withdraw from the table altogether. Now, I don't see why qualitative and experimental methods should be mutually exclusive or antagonistic. I rather see them as a necessarily complementary for understanding religion or cultural phenomena in general. And each one of them can offer types of evidence that the other one cannot. And I think the two can engage in productive discussion and collaboration, actually. So in approaching my subject, I have tried to combine these two approaches by bringing laboratory methods into the field. So the idea here is that instead of taking our participants out of context and bringing them into a sterilized laboratory setting, why don't we try to take the laboratory into context by moving it into the field? So we're talking about an experimental anthropological approach. 
and I, I want to stress this and I will repeat it again, that I, I did not mean to claim that this approach should substitute either lab experiments or traditional fieldwork. And in fact, as people who have done field experiments know very well, sometimes they can combine their respective problems at, at the same time. But I think that sometimes we can also combine the strengths when it's properly done. And especially when it comes to things like religion and ritual, things so heavily laden with cultural meanings that cannot be easily reproduced in the lab. And I would like to give you two examples of this kind of work. So after finishing my doctoral research in the Anastenaria, I went to study another fireworking ritual, this time in Spain. I went to this little village in Soria called San Pedro Manrique, where, this, where a fireworking ritual, again, is performed every June as part of the festival of San Juan. These guys have built an amphitheater specifically for use for the ritual. This is the biggest structure in the village, the biggest public structure in the village, and it's used only once per year. It can host five times the local population. It's a 600-people village. 3,000 spectators come there to watch the firework every year. So in the evening, this is, this is part of a longer festival of San Juan, and in, in the evening of the 23rd, people will gather at the central square, and then they will go to this venue in a procession, and the firework will start at exactly the midnight of June 23rd, which is the summer solstice. And one by one, the fireworkers will stand up, and they will cross a bed of glowing coals while carrying one of their beloved persons. By the way, we measured the, the temperature of the coals, and the surface temperatures that we got were 677 degrees Celsius. So that's pretty hot. It's, it's very hard to stand there even take, taking this picture. Now, just like the rituals of the Anastenaria, this ritual has been performed for as long as anybody remembers. And just like the Anastenaria, various scholars have connected it to ancient or even prehistoric practices, although there's no hard evidence to support these claims. It might be true, but we can't really support them. But unlike the Anastenaria, this ritual does not have a religious character. Although it's part of the festival of San Juan, people just don't connect it to religion. And many of the participants are actually not religious at all. But even though this is not about worship, it seems to have a very sacred character, nonetheless. And people attribute extreme importance to it. Now, this girl in the picture was at the time the daughter of the mayor of the village. And on that day, I read an interview of the mayor in the local press. And he was saying that, although I've been, I've been the mayor for 22 years, and today is the highlight of my career, and he said, not because I'm going to get to organize the festival for the last time, but because today I'm going to get to carry my daughter through the fire. And after he did, then she, she broke into tears. The next year, after that, uh, Alejandro was having some heart problems, and the doctor uh, told him that he was not allowed to do the, the firework. So he wouldn't go up there because he couldn't stand it. But his son eventually uh, improvised and asked him to come there because he wanted to carry him. And I think it's one of the pictures that you've already seen. He wanted to carry his father through the fire, which really meant a lot to him. And immediately after he was carried, he went on and did it himself. And he said, well, who are the doctors to know what's good? <laughs> so all my interviews indicated this really intense sense of significance 
and the fact that the firewalk is a fundamental part of people's individual and collective identity. It's part of who we are, they said. So these are some... Yeah, so they would say it's, it's really part of who we are. And, and if uh, if you took away the firewalking ritual from San Pedro, then it wouldn't be San Pedro anymore. The, the village would not be the same without it. And they also indicated that the ritual experience has important social functions in this community. So they would say things all the time, unprompted, uh, like this. That when you go up there, everybody's your brother, even if somebody's your enemy. When you're there, he's your comrade. And the next day you see them in the street and you know they've been through this together, so you've bonded. You have a different relationship to this person. So that becomes conscious and explicit. And social scientists have long claimed that collective, highly arousing collective rituals bring people together. They produce a sense of community, uh, a feeling of belonging uh, and assimilation. And Durkheim called this famously collective effervescence. And people explicitly talk about the ritual bringing them together. But what does this anecdotal evidence mean? And how can we possibly measure this sense of togetherness? Now, the philosopher Sean Gallagher has used the term front-loading phenomenology to describe a process of moving between levels of interpretation. He notes that experimental work is motivated by scientific theory, whereas, on the other hand, phenomenological approaches privilege subjective understandings. And in the process that he proposes, phenomenological insights can actually be incorporated into experimental design as a testable hypothesis derived from the practitioners or the observers themselves, which is what we try to do in the study that I'm about to describe. And this presupposes a close relationship between nemic and edic perspectives, as well as a methodological synergy between forms of participant observation and experimentation. Once more, I would like to say that although this approach cannot substitute laboratory experiments nor ethnographic observation, it can in certain cases address questions that neither one approach alone could. So for this study, I assembled a team of researchers from a variety of disciplines and brought some lab methods into the field in order to test these insights deriving from the fieldwork itself. And our task was to measure this collectively shared emotion, this togetherness that Durkheim refers to as collective effervescence. So we chose to operationalize this notion as shared arousal. And what it is that we brought heart rate monitors in the field, which were placed on firewalkers, related spectators, and unrelated visitors of this, who came just to watch this ritual. These were very unobtrusive. People would wear them under their clothes for the entire length of the, uh, of the ritual, several hours. And at the end, everybody, almost everybody, forgot that they had them on, so we had to chase them to get them back. <laughs> Outsiders could not tell that there was anything weird happening at this ritual. And the local press was much more intrusive than we were. And the first thing we saw when we started analyzing the data was pretty unexpected, I'd say. We also, we also obtained subjective measurements of arousal that we wanted to compare to the physiological measurements. And we were surprised to see that the two were completely different. So what you see here is that we asked people to, uh, to assess their level of stress during the procession, right before the firewalk, and this 
This is the part where we go, they go running up a hill during the firework itself and after the firework. And this is what they said, they felt. This is what our measurements showed. And this is the surprising part. But everybody in the group, I think with one exception, everybody claimed that firewalking was actually the point where it had the least stress. They said they were completely calm during this moment. Some of them explicitly said that they were definitely calmer then than they were during our baseline measurements during the interview. And a few of them actually challenged me to bet with them that this would be the case, that they would show up on the heart rate monitors and said, my heart rate was, I bet it was lower then than it is now. Well, our measurements revealed that they had up to 200 beats per minute during the firewalk. I think 80% of our subjects were beyond the maximum, the, the medically accepted maximal safe limit of arousal, heart attack levels. So one important point here, that you can't always rely on, on subjective reports. Now, you, you might want to, to question the, the validity of the measurements themselves, but that's a whole other issue. We're, we're going to come back to that. Now, with regards to our hypothesis, our measurements show that the ritual produced synchronous arousal in the absence of any motor synchrony. And I need to stress this, that in, in other studies, in, in more controlled studies, we've seen that motor synchrony results into uh, increased rapport and group cohesion. We wanted to see if that would happen even in the absence of synchrony. These guys do it one after the other, not at the same time. What you see on the left is the heart rate reactivity levels for uh, one of the firewalkers, the blue line, one of the related spectators, the red line. There's a high degree of synchronicity there. And then the black line is a marginally related spectator, and the green line is an unrelated spectator. And through this visual qualitative representation, uh, the point is pretty clear, I think. But then uh, we had somebody analyze it and run across recurrence quantification analysis, which basically quantified the degree of synchronicity. And what you can see here is that the more structure you can see in these plots, which is actually measurable, the higher the synchronicity. And then we were able to predict the level of synchronous arousal based on the, uh, on the type of ritual participation. So whether they were active practitioners or related spectators or unrelated spectators. And we saw that synchronicity was very high for Synchronous arousal was very high for both firewalkers and related spectators, but not for the unrelated spectators. There was no pattern there. We also saw there was a crucial social component because the degree of synchronicity could actually be predicted on the basis of social proximity. So the closer you were to this group, the more ties you had within the group, the more synchronous your uh, heart rate patterns were with others in this group. Durkheim himself well understood that what he called effervescence is something fundamentally communal. Not merely generating emotions, but precisely bringing those who share them into more intimate and more dynamic relationship, in his words. So effervescence does not happen automatically. It's not just a mere, mere neural response, which is something that is involved, but not just that. It's beyond that. You can get this feeling of effervescence at large gatherings, but you also need to be part of the group in the first place. And my favorite example 
is football. Now I'm a football fan and a supporter of this Greek team over there, Pauk, which of course is the best team in the world. <laughs> now when I'm in the stadium and I'm part of this crowd, I really get goosebumps. And it's not only because of the crowd. I've been to bigger stadiums with 70,000 people. It's fun, but it doesn't give me goosebumps. Uh, it's just folklore to me. And if I go to a baseball stadium, it's just weird. No matter what the crowd does, it doesn't make sense. And it's not about the sport either. Do you think football would be so popular if we could only watch it on TV, if we couldn't come together in stadiums? I don't think so. So chanting in synchrony with 30,000 people, the, the very act of congregating, as Durkheim puts it, is really crucial. But group membership is also crucial there. And it's both part of the reason and the result of these events, which is something that is now getting tricky. Now, of course, this basic level biological demonstration of shared arousal does not actually confirm the hypothesis that these rituals bring people together socially or that they increase prosociality. And for that reason, I designed another field experiment. For the last several years, I've been conducting uh, fieldwork in the island of Mauritius. Mauritius is this tiny island in the uh, Mascarene archipelago, east of Madagascar. And I went there because it's home to some of the most intense rituals performed anywhere in the world. The members of the Hindu majority there, especially the Tamils, they perform far walking, knife walking, piercing, and other really, really intense rituals. And all these rituals are performed entirely voluntarily. Now you see them wherever you have uh, members of the Hindu diaspora. They're not unique to Mauritius, but Mauritius has some other advantages as well. It's, it's really a melting pot of traditions, languages, ethnicities. It's small. It's in the middle of nowhere. Participants don't take off after the ritual. They're stuck there. So it was a very good setting for our study. So again, I gathered a team of colleagues from various disciplines, and we set out to study the relationship between ritual intensity and prosociality. Here's the setting. This ritual is focused, the, the ritual we focused on for this study is called the Kavadi, the Taipusam Kavadi. What happens here is that after 10 days of fasting, participants will gather at a riverbank, and they will pierce themselves, they will have somebody pierced them with needles and hooks and skewers and these needles can vary from one through the tongue and of the forehead to several hundreds I've seen 300 I think they will hang objects, especially lime through hooks attached to their skin and they will carry miniature temples through chains attached to their skin they will walk on nails some of them will sleep on a bed of nails for the whole 10 days some of them will do these piercings, and they will carry these huge structures called the kavadi. Kavadi actually means burden, literally. These can vary anywhere between 10 and 40 kilos. And they will do that for about five hours under the scorching sun. It will be impossible for me to take my shoes off and, and walk on the asphalt. They, they do the whole thing walking on asphalt, and when they're done, their feet are burnt. And after the five-hour procession, they will climb a mountain, and they will go up to the temple and deposit these cavities to the Lord Muruga, whom the ritual is performed for. So I think you can call this a pretty intense ritual. 
And as you can imagine, the logistics of the study were, in this context, were really extraordinary. We have a, we have a ritual performed by about 500 active participants and, and another 1,000 spectators. So pulling this study off was a testament to the need for <coughs> collaboration. You can't do this as a solitary anthropologist. You have to do this as part of a larger group. And another thing you need is support from the local community, and I managed to get tremendous support. Uh, there was a lot of careful planning, I'd like to think, but there was also huge support from the community. And this is where it pays off all this time that you spend in the field. A couple of years in, in Mercer's, you've, the, the contacts you've established, the friendships you, you've made, they, they all contributed to making the study happen. The, uh, the temple officials will, uh, would uh, announce the study every night during the preparations. They would encourage people to participate. They allowed us to, to use the temple, um, space that belonged to the temple for the study, and so on and so forth. Now, in a field study, you don't manipulate variables. You don't manipulate your setting. You have to work around the existing setting. So what you do then, you look for naturally occurring variables, and, and you build your design around them. Now, the Kavadi is arguably the most widely performed high arousal ritual in the world. And it has three naturally occurring conditions that you see in each one of those pictures. As part of the same festival, you have what we call the lower deal, which is a collective prayer, and the higher deal, which is this. And this one has two levels of participation, active performance and non-active performance. We're just following the procession with no piercings, no cavities, none of the really intense things that these guys do. Now, it's the same people who engage in all of these activities. It's the same group, which was very important. So we recruited people from each one of these categories, and this is this is what it looks like. That's the the temple is up there, so you have to climb 242 steps to get to the top. These steps are made of rock, which means that they're even more burning than the asphalt, and people really get their feet hurt at this point. And this is where the, what the main street looks like. So we wanted to compare these two different rituals, the higher deal and the lower deal, in terms of their effects on prosocial behavior. And we also wanted to see if those effects would extend to mere observers. And to do this, we used an economic task to measure prosocial behavior. Previous studies have used what we call economic games. But we thought that this would be a bit artificial in the setting and were logistical. Problem. So we, we went for something more natural, which was a simple donation task. And we also used questionnaires, scales on social identity, pain, and other variables. And one problem I had encountered in my previous experiments from working in Mauritius was that pretty much every scale that I tried to use before, which had been developed in a lab or used with Western participants, was more or less meaningless in Mauritius. Either the questions didn't make sense or the distribution was so skewed that it was useless, with the ceiling effects, for example. So we had to make our own questions for some of the categories there, as a way of out of, 
out of the problem. And this is one example. So what we did is that we recruited a programmer who wrote the script. In this case, you have this question, which is context-specific. It's one of, which one of these identities better describes? You know, if you ask a Mauritian Hindu, a Hindu Mauritian, they will never choose. They will say it's both. I'm, I'm a Mauritian and I'm a Hindu. I can't choose. But what if you force them to choose one or the other? Another problem is whenever using scales, we would get ceiling effects or floor effects. So people wouldn't use the entire scale. They would be polarized. So we came up with this design where we, uh, we offered them this unmarked sliding scale, anchored at the two extremes. And if you want to move to either extreme, you have to press the button several times. So only those who were really serious about going to the extreme did that. And this way, we got a nice distribution. Of course, we also had to, to face many other practical issues, like where we get time constraints. Uh, when, when you've spent all this money bringing all these people together, and everything depends on a single day, and there's a storm coming. This is, this is not, <laughs> this is very stressful. I think that the most stressful periods of my life have all been in the field doing these experiments, these studies, where everything depends on a single performance. Where do you, where do you get power? E even things like that. But again, we got amazing help from the, from the locals. So this is the, these are the people going up to the temple, and that's, the temple is somewhere here. And we use this room, which is down here, and belongs to the temple. We set up our four computers here. And there's a booth here, which you can enter and close the door behind you. This will become, it will become obvious why this is important. And as people were coming down from the temple, after they performed their ritual, they were recruited by local assistants coming into the, into the room. This is one of our local assistants. And this is the worst part of any field experiment I've done, the waiting. A lot of stress there. So as I said, after performing the ritual, people would come into the room and answer our questions on the computer. And after the answer of the questions, they were engaged in the decision-making task that we set up for them. And the way we did this is that we would pay them 200 rupees. That's roughly five pounds. And it's a very significant amount. For some of these people, it could be two or three days' wages. And we paid them these 200 rupees in coins of 20. So we had a sort of natural scale of 1 to 10. And we told them that this, is, this money is from our university to compensate them for answering the questionnaires. Nothing else. After that, one of the confederates would ask them if they would like to make a donation to the temple. And they would enter this booth and they would make a completely anonymous donation from that money that we already gave them. Now that led to a huge logistical nightmare. This is what was left after we did the study. We needed something like 24,000 coins. And the banks wouldn't give it to us. For some reason, Mauritians really value their coins. It's very hard to get these large amounts of coins. So we had to go to the casino and ask for coins. And they weren't very keen on sharing their coins. And what we ended up doing is that we discovered that if you went to the slot machine and if you entered a bill and pressed payout, you would get coins back. <laughs> and when they found out, they kicked us out and went to another casino. That's how we got them <laughs> So we solved that problem. Another problem is that 
we needed the donation to be anonymous. We, we told people it was an anonymous donation. We signed consent forms. Uh, but we also needed to know how much people donated. <laughs> that was a tough one. But we found a, a system of marked envelopes, which was, so this is a, an almost university uh, stamp, which is fake, and it, it includes a serial number. And the serial number is connected to the responses in the computer. But the responses in the computer have no names. That, those, those are, both of these things are anonymous. They're just related to each other. So we don't know. No? So we don't know what, what each individual is giving or answering in the questions. But we know that this specific answer is related to a specific amount. And the only thing they signed was a consent form uh, which would not relate to either one of these two things. So we don't know anything about each specific individual, but we know what the donation corresponds to in terms of the answers. Now, to the results. The first thing we found was very surprising, actually. I have to admit, we were expecting that the high ordeal ritual would increase in-group affiliation. We saw the opposite. We see that these are the the lower deal participants, these are the higher deal observers, and the higher deal performers. So people in the high ordeal saw themselves as more Mauritian than Hindus. We asked them also about the other groups, the other sailing groups. They, they said the same thing. They saw Muslims as more Mauritians after that ritual, and they see Creoles or Christians as more Mauritians. We'll get back to that. And there was also a correlation between pain and inclusive identity. So the more pain they reported that was involved in this ritual, the, the, the more they affiliated, they identified with the inclusive group. With regards to, our, to the donations, we confirmed the hypothesis that the high ordeal ritual increased donations. Actually, it increased donations tremendously. Uh, this is the chanting. This is the Kavadit. There's no significant differences between observers and performers, although it's slightly different, but not statistically significant. So we see that the high ordeal increased donations not just for performers, but also for observers. And I think this fits nicely to our Spain results. We also see the same correlation there between reported pain and levels of donation. So the more painful they found the ritual, the more money they gave. And we controlled for effects of religiosity or temple attendance. Another thing we saw that was that there was a correlation between experience and donation. So the, the more times people have done the ritual in the past, the more money they gave. And that was not an effect of age because generally older people might have more money, so they might give more. But that was not in the case here. Now, I have to note that the people in the lower deal, all of them took part in the higher deal later. And I'm mentioning this because one of the first criticisms might be that we have a self-selection issue here. That it's not that the, the ritual increases the higher deal increases prosociality, is that people who are more prosocial to begin with are more likely to engage in these behaviors. That's not the case here. Everybody in our sample did both rituals, but there were only each group was only tested in one occasion. 
and everybody had done it in the past as well. So this shows us that these results did not arise from intrinsic differences in either religiosity or other personality issues, at least the ones we control for, but rather from the ritual conditions themselves. And that, this is important because this is a quasi-experiment in the sense that we did not have the freedom to manipulate the setting. We didn't assign our, our subjects into uh, the conditions in any, kind of, in any kind of random way. We had to work around it. So, and, and I think that the, the general correlations also nail this effect. What we see here is pain divided by quartiles. And there's a linear increase as people report more pain, they give more money. And that's across uh, performers and observers. Now, of course, when we did that study, we didn't have a control group. So one might ask, does the higher deal increase prosociality? Or might it be that the lower deal decreases prosociality? That's a theoretical possibility. I didn't think it would be like this. And it wasn't, because the next time we went there, we, we did another study with a control group, which was tested outside of any uh, ritual context. And they were even lower, statistically, uh, significantly lower than the lower deal which shows us that the lower deal, people coming together to, uh, to perform the collective chanting in itself, increased pro-social donations, increased donations, but not as much as the higher deal, which, which did much more. So it would seem that this ritual indeed brings the entire community together. And I have to make a note here that in the, in the field of cognition and culture, which I subscribe to, we're used to talking about how cognition shapes culture but we often forget to discuss how cultural environments affect cognition and behavior. Now, Mauritius is a melting pot, and, I, and I'm, I'm, I'm referring to, to the finding about inclusive identity here. Mauritius is a melting pot which has always been portrayed as, a, as an example of peaceful cohabitation. You have different ethnic groups. There's never been violent tensions behind them, uh, between them, as far as we know. And there's also no external enemies. The country has no army. Um, they have no external threats. The ritual is performed by the majority group, which is not under any threat from other groups. And indeed, this ritual is often performed by members of other groups as well. It's not uncommon at all to see Christians join in this group, even Chinese, and in a few cases, even Muslims. And as an ethnographer, you can clearly see the social cohesion in this context. Like when these people over there, wait for the procession to pass by their home so they can go out and offer everybody free drinks and food. And those are Hindus, but uh, these are Creoles, they're Christian Creoles, and they're offering the Hindu participants free food and drinks to support this ritual. And you see it with other rituals in Mauritius as well. It's not uncommon to see Hindus pray at their temple and then move to the, to the statue of Madonna, which is next to the temple and pray there as well. There's Hindu temples that actually have statues, statues of Jesus and Mary uh, inside the, the temple. And the Buddha as well. Now again, this study can, can only get us so far. If we want to identify some of the mechanisms underlying these effects, we probably need to bring these insights from the field back to the lab to do psychological experiments. 
For example, we're currently conducting a lab study with my colleagues where we administer real pain. We had a lot of trouble getting it through ethics. <laughs> but we had some dentists on board, and they're used to giving people pain. So we're doing the study now, and uh, then we're getting behavioral measurements of prosociality. So some of the questions, is it pain at all that drives this? Is it, is it a perception of effort, uh, or is it both? Does religion have anything to do with this effect in the first place? So that shows that the, this relationship between the lab and the field is, is very dynamic and continuous, and you have to move back and forth. So these are some of the methods I've been experimenting with. And my colleague, Andreas Robstorff, I know, has uh, pointed to three senses of the term experimental anthropology. In these senses, experimentation can be a goal, it can be a means, or it can be the object of study. The first is what he calls experiments as research aesthetics. And very simply, that means experimenting, experimenting with new methods, with new ways of being in the field, with new ways of obtaining data, with new ways of analyzing data, as anthropologists, that is, new ways. And in this sense, anthropology has always been experimental. When Malinowski left the veranda and pitched the tent among his subjects, that was a radical experiment which changed anthropology forever. Now, in the second sense, which relates to what I've described here, these studies, experiments are tools for data collection. Tools, once more, that cannot substitute participant observation, but can very well complement it. And they can help us test some of the assumptions from our field and about our field sites. And finally, the third sense is also very familiar to anthropologists. Think of science studies, for example. In this sense, experiments become the object of scrutiny themselves as social forms of knowledge production. And this allows us to identify problems, to identify limitations and constraints. Because when we're using this multi-level approach, it inev inevitably raises important questions regarding consilience, priority, and translation between findings in different levels. Now, for example, in the Spanish study, we have an inconsistency between subjective reports and physiological measurements. Which one do we privilege? What is the phenomenological experience of somebody who goes through the fire and has 200 beats per minute but feels completely calm? And where should we be looking at to explain this? Is it, is it a memory thing or is it a perception thing? I don't have a definite answer to this question, but I believe that the most interesting contributions often don't consist in providing the right answers but in asking the right questions. And I'll leave you at that. Thank you.